The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. As we turn our attention now to God's Word, would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. Who are you? It's a pretty fundamental question, right? A question that we all ask at some point in our lives, maybe that you're asked several times throughout the week, who are you? Or if you're frustrated at somebody, who are you? Or if you're really impressed with somebody, who are you? It's a fundamental question, and we can answer it in many different ways. We can give a simple name. Who am I? I'm Andrew Shank. We can give a job or an occupation. Who am I? I'm a pastor. We can give relationships. I'm a husband and a father and a son and a brother. We can give our heritage. I'm a shank. We can give our pedigree. I'm an NC State grad and an RTS grad. We can give credentials. We can give relationships. We can give all kinds of things. Who are you? Other philosophies, other worldviews, other religions all have an answer to this question. When asked, who are you, where should you look? Materialism says, look at what you have. Look at your stuff. Look at what you own. That's who you are. You are what you can buy. Naturalism, evolutionism say, look back. Look back the billions of years, the eons of time that resulted in you. But remember, you're just a way station on the way to something better. Secular humanism, modernism, enlightenment philosophy says, look forward. Look at the great potential that mankind has. That's what we are, where we're going. Not where we've come from, but where we're going. Postmodernism, today's culture says, look inside. Who do you want to be? Who do you feel like being today? That's who you are. You pick. Christianity gives a different answer. It doesn't say look at your stuff. It doesn't say look back into time. It doesn't say look forward to the horizon. It doesn't say look inside. It says, look up. We'll see this morning that Psalm 8 goes a long way towards answering our question about who we are by telling us to look up. Look up at our great God because we will never understand who we are. We cannot understand who we are unless we understand it in relationship to our great God, unless we look up. So would you read with me now Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for giving it to us, for trusting us with it, for blessing us with it. 
And Father, as we open your word this morning, as we look at Psalm 8, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would send your spirit to help us understand this psalm, that we might understand you and ourselves better, that we might love you more and worship you in spirit and in truth. And do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we will never understand who we are until we understand it in light of who God is. We cannot understand who we are unless we ask the question in reference to our incredible God. And David tells us in Psalm 8 three things about this incredible God. First, he talks about the incredible power of our God. His power over creation and his power over his enemies. First, his power over creation. Look back at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. David launches into the psalm straight in with praise. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. That word majestic is a royal word. We use it about kings. We call kings and queens your majesty. So David is not just saying, hey, you're a pretty cool guy. He's saying you are king. You are the ruler. You are in charge. How kingly is your name? And when the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, it's not just talking about what you put on the first line of an IRS form or what you address something to. No, God's name carries with it his character, his reputation, his acts, his holiness. It's the signifier for everything that God is. So when David says, how majestic is your name, we can paraphrase him as saying, Lord, how regal, how kingly is your character and reputation and glory. You are awesome to behold. And the whole world knows it. How majestic is your name through all the earth. Our God has power over creation. And although the earth declares this glory and displays it, the heavens themselves can't contain the glory of God. Have you ever seen a really, really good night sky? You're going to have to leave Hilton Head to do this. I know that we're proud of our low lights at night that make it difficult for newcomers to find Walmart after sunset, but it's okay. I'm over it. Um, But you're going to have to leave Hilton Head to see a really good night sky. I had the opportunity in high school to go backpacking in the Pyrenees Mountains in southern France, and one night we were camping above cloud level, so no clouds in the sky because they're all below us. Nice, arid, dry air, so really sharp vision, and we just laid out on the ground and looked up, and it was awesome to behold. Millions of stars, things that that we couldn't imagine seeing anywhere else. And as we laid there in silence, because what are you going to say when you can see a sky like that? We noticed a glow on the horizon and we got worried because we thought we had laid there all night long and the sun was coming up. And remember, we're backpacking, so we have to hike down a mountain with all of our stuff. And it's helpful to have a good night's sleep before you try and do something like that. But it wasn't the sun. It was the moon rising over the mountains, sharp and clear and crisp and so close it felt like you could reach out and touch it. Have you ever seen a sky like that? Don't you get a sense of wonder in times like that? A sense of awe at our great God? 
But do you see what David says? He says, as beautiful as that is, God has set his glory above that. That glory, that majesty of the heavens is not enough to contain the majesty of our God. This puny little earth in this puny little solar system, in this puny little galaxy, the entire cosmos is not enough to contain the glory of our great God. He is powerful over all creation, and he created it by a word. He rules over it as a king. Brothers and sisters, won't you fear this God? This is not a God to be trifled with. This is not a God to be ignored. This is not a God to be dealt with when we feel like it. This is a God to be worshipped. He is powerful over all creation. But he's not just powerful over creation, he's powerful over his enemies as well. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. This verse is a little bit confusing as you first look at it. David is recognizing the fact that as foolish as it is to try and be an enemy of the God described in verse 1, some people really are that foolish. Some people are in the category of foes and enemies and avengers who hate God, who are against him. But what does it take for God to defeat them? What does it take for God to silence the foe and the enemy and the avenger? A baby. I mean, this is the picture that David gives us. It's ridiculous. Picture a battlefield. Gladiator, Braveheart, the Patriot, whatever your battle movie of choice is, picture that battlefield. You've got one army on one side, arrayed, the enemies of God ready for battle, and who does he send out in his defense? A baby. I don't know if you know this, but infants are pretty useless in a fight. They're not much help. But all they have to do is speak, babble, make their little nonsense sounds in praise to our God, and that's enough to overthrow God's enemies because he is so powerful that he uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Jesus quotes this verse in his earthly ministry, and it's really interesting. In Matthew 21, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He he has the triumphal entry into the city. He cleanses the temple and kicks out the money changers, And then he sets up shop and says, this is God's house. I'm God. This is where I'm supposed to be. So he stays there for a while. And in Matthew 21, starting in verse 14, we get this description. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear What these are saying, the scribes and Pharisees say, don't you hear them praising you? And Jesus says, yes. Haven't you read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So at the outset, Jesus is validating their praise. He's saying they're right to praise me. They're welcome in the kingdom of God. Children, you have every right to worship our God. You don't have to be a certain age to be able to give acceptable worship to God. Jesus welcomes the praise of infants and nursing babies and children. Second, he's calling himself God. In Psalm 8, when this praise that comes out of the mouth of babies and infants goes to God the Father, God above the heavens. And here, Jesus is saying, 
their right to give that to me. Jesus is saying, I am God and the children are right to praise me. Not just that they're allowed to praise me, but that they're right to praise me. But there's a third thing going on here that's a little more subtle. You see, when the authors of the Old Testament or authors of the New Testament quote the Old Testament, they're expecting that we know our Bibles well enough to bring in the context of it, to bring in not just a proof text out of verse 2, but the whole context of Psalm 8. And what does God say in Psalm 8? That the praise of babies and infants is established because of foes and enemies. Jesus knows that the chief priests and the scribes know this. That's their job, to know the Old Testament. He knows that they know why babies praise. And he's saying to them, the baby's praise identifies you as my enemy, as my foe, as an avenger. He's saying for all your knowledge, for all your study, for all your intimacy with the Old Testament, you missed the point. These babies get it. They're the wise ones here in this situation. Don't let your knowledge of your thirst for knowledge of God in the Old Testament let you miss Christ in the new. They are the ones who get it. God, the Father, God, the Son, use the weak things of the world to shame the strong because our God is powerful over his enemies. So our God is powerful over creation and powerful over his enemies. So what? How does that help us answer the question of who we are? First, God is king. Therefore, you're not. I'm not. God is king. He's the ruler. He's the one in charge, and we are his subjects. Either we're in rebellion to the true king or we're aligned with him. But either way, he's the king, and we are not. He's the creator, and we're part of his creation. Remember that night sky that I described earlier that you pictured in your mind, seeing thousands upon thousands of stars and we, see, we say that we feel a sense of wonder and a sense of awe, but don't you also get a sense of insignificance, of who am I, of I'm a speck of dust on a speck of dust in the galaxy. There's a sense of humility, of smallness, of, of silence that comes when we realize that we're part of this crea- creation from this great creator God. So first, Realizing these things about God gives us great humility. But second, realizing these things about God gives us great freedom. Especially freedom from the fear of man. Because we're to fear God alone. He's the creator. He's the king. No one else is. So you don't have to fear the foe and the enemy and the avenger. You don't have to fear the enemies of God and God's people. But more than that, you don't have to fear anyone see, we're all plagued with the fear of man. What does that look like? What, it's subtle. What do I mean by that? When we pretend to be interested in or knowledgeable about something, be it cars or politics or cooking or a particular hobby or movies or Russian literature or whatever it might be, when we pretend knowledge that we don't have because we want someone else to be impressed by us and think we're cosmopolitan, That's fear of man. When we violate our conscience or the law of God to win the favor of other people, that's fear of man. It's fear of man when we change the way that we eat or exercise or parent 
or work or vacation or anything, not because we've studied and researched and prayed and sought the will of God and said, this is better, but this will make me more liked. That's fear of man. It's fear of man when I stand before you preaching the word of God more consumed with what you think about me than whether or not I'm representing God well. That's fear of man. And when our minds are consumed with thoughts of what other people think about us, or when our actions are determined by the reaction we expect from other people, it's evidence that we fear man and not God. We might be worried that they'll think poorly of us, so we'll be self-conscious and anxious and constantly questioning, am I doing the right thing? Am I being the right kind of person? That's fear of man. But we might be prideful, assuming that people are already enamored with us, and so we'll keep doing the kinds of things that will maintain that opinion. Either way, if our minds are consumed with the thoughts of other people about us, if our actions are determined by the reaction we want from other people, it's a strong indication that we fear man, not God. Look around the room for a second. Look at your neighbor. Look at the person on the other side of the room. You don't have to be afraid of these people. They're not God. They're not the king. They're not the creator. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. Look at our incredible God. His glory is above the heavens. He defeats his enemies with the babbling of nursing babies. He's your creator and your king. Why fear anything else? I know this is hard to do. It's hard for me to do right now because I can see you. I can can get a response from you. I can tell if you're paying attention and locked in or if you're snoozing in your chair. And so it's easier for me to fear what I can see rather than the God that I can't see. But one of the ways that David helps us, helps remove from us the fear of man is by telling us not just about the incredible power of our God, but the incredible care of our God. Our God is incredibly powerful and he's incredibly caring. He's caring for his creation. Look at verse 3. David says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. I'm going to stop mid-thought for David. In verse 1, we talked about the bigness of creation, the vastness of it, and the sense of smallness and insignificance that we get when we see that. But here, David talks about the intricacy of creation and God's care for creation. He doesn't only use the word heavens, which is kind of a catch-all for everything up there, but he talks about specific bodies. He talks about the moon and the stars He doesn't talk about the general acts of God's mighty hand or his outstretched arm. He talks about the intricate, detailed work of his fingers. He even talks about God using his fingers to set each star in place. And there are a lot of stars. This is meticulous, detailed, intricate care of our God. I hope on Monday night you had a chance to be with friends, with family, to celebrate, to see some fireworks because we're Americans and when we celebrate we blow stuff up and that's what we do. We were with uh, some friends out at Harbortown, had a great spot on the lawn looking west over the water and as we were waiting for the fireworks to start, we saw the sunset and if you were lucky enough to also be looking west over water on Monday night, you'll know what I'm talking about. It was 
a glorious sunset. Just the right mix of clouds and empty sky, reds and yellows and oranges and golds, light coming through the clouds and reflecting off the water. You, can't, you couldn't paint something better than that. It's marvelous to behold. And it's almost as if God said, I know you guys are all out here for fireworks, but I have an audience, so I'm going to show off a little bit. When it was done, when the sun finally went down, I, honestly, I was ready to say, well, that's it. It's not going to get any better than that. Let's beat the traffic and go home. We didn't. We st- well, yeah, I know, right? We didn't. We stayed for the fireworks, but um, they paled in comparison to that sunset. You could see God's intricate care and beauty in creation. And that's the beauty that David's talking about. The work of God's fingers. He cares for and watches over his creation. We talk about this as God's eminence, his closeness, his involvement with the world. That he's not some faraway God that set everything in motion, wipes his hands and says, that was a lot of work, I'm going to take a nap, you guys run things for now. No, God is eminent, he's close, he's with us. This is held in contrast to verses 1 and 2 that talk about the transcendence of God, that he's big, that he's other, that he's altogether glorious, that Moses has to take off his shoes in God's presence and Isaiah falls on his face. The Bible presents us with both of these, the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. It's both, and we don't just see his eminence in creation. We experience it personally because God doesn't just care for creation. He cares for his children. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. God is imminent. He is mindful of us and he cares for us. And that baffles David. It should confuse us as well. Why, God? Why are you mindful of us? Why do you care for us? It's helpful for us to dive into the particular language here a little bit because this word mindful doesn't really tell us a lot. We can be mindful of a lot of things. I can be mindful of the person that comes to a full stop in a dedicated turning lane onto 278. I can be mindful of a mosquito that I'm swatting. I can be mindful of my daughter whose laugh brings me great joy. Mindfulness doesn't really equal something good, but here it does. Because the other ways that the Old Testament used this word, it's often translated remember, especially when used about God. So in Genesis 8, verse 1, when the floods cover the whole earth, God is mindful of and remembers Noah. In Genesis 30, when Leah is tormenting Rachel because she doesn't have children, God is mindful of and remembers Rachel. He blesses her womb and gives her children. In Exodus 2.24, when God hears the groaning of his people in slavery in Egypt, he's mindful and he remembers his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in Leviticus 26, God says, When my people go into exile, if they will return to me, if they will repent, if they will come back to me with their hearts, I will be mindful of, I will remember my covenant with them and bring them home. God's mindfulness of us is not mere observation. It's not just the fact that he happens to see us. God's mindfulness, God's mindfulness is a rescuing 
redeeming mindfulness. Whether from earthwide floods or Egyptian slave masters or Babylonian exile or just a nagging sister wife, God's mindfulness is a rescuing, redeeming mindfulness. And even better, even more than that, he cares. Who's the son of man that you care for him? This word care is sometimes translated visit or attend to. So in Genesis 21, the Lord visits Sarah, cares for her, and she gives birth to Isaac, another barren woman. This word is all over the Joseph story. Whether Joseph is in the pit being sold into slavery, rising to prominence in Potiphar's house, back in prison, or rising to prominence in Pharaoh's palace, all over the place God visits, cares for Joseph. In Ruth chapter 1, Naomi and her husband Elimelech go to Moab because they hear that there the Lord has cared for his people. There's food to be had. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, yet another barren woman is cared for by God and given children. When the Lord cares, it's a blessing protecting care. Do you get David's surprise in verse 4? Do you understand why he can say, it's almost like his breath catches in his in his, in his mouth, when, when I consider your heavens, when I consider your glory that's above the heavens, your strength over your enemies, your intricate care of creation, why? Like, why, why do you notice me? Why do you do anything at all for me? And yet he does. He remembers and he cares. He's absolutely blown away by the mindfulness and the care of our God. Won't you trust this God? At times in our lives, it seems like God has forgotten us. A newborn baby just won't sleep. A teenager just won't listen. A spouse just won't love you. An adult child just won't repent and come home. A nation just can't seem to go a week without some scandal of injustice or senseless act of violence. But won't you trust this God when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When you're struggling with sin that you can't quit, that you just won't stop, and the guilt that lingers with it, won't you trust this God when he says that, that though those sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow? When you're fearful, doubting, despairing, frustrated, won't you trust the God that says, though the mountains may give way, though the hills may depart, my steadfast love will never leave you? Won't you trust this God? God does not forget his children. He is mindful and he cares. We take great comfort in that. Our God cares for his children and that means you. It also means the person right next to you and the person next to them and the person across the room and the person that you walked the long way around the Welcome Center to avoid this morning and the person that you lingered a little longer in the bathroom so you didn't have to talk to. God cares for his children, and that means you. But again, look around. It means everybody else in this room as well. You don't have to fear one another. We talked about that with God's transcendence. We fear him alone. But God's care for us should drive us to care for one another. God's care for us drives us, motivates us, impels us to care for one another. So I ask you this morning, do you ever allow yourself to be inconvenienced for a brother or sister? Do you care? Are you willing to set aside your schedule, your plans, your comfort for a brother or sister in need? 
Do you care? See, our willingness to do these things is really good evidence that we love the kinds of things that God loves, specifically his people. But there's a flip side to this as well. Do you ever let yourself be cared for by the body of Christ? See, in our world and even in our church, we have an I've got this mentality. Hey, can I give you a hand with that? I got this. I'm good. Can, can I do anything? I'm good. I told you. I've got this. Stay over here at arm's length. I don't need you. I don't want to owe you anything. Brothers and sisters, God's care for us normally comes through his body here on earth. When you reject the care of a brother and sister in your time of need, you're not just rejecting them, you're rejecting the care and mindfulness of our great God. Are you humble enough to let someone help you? Are you humble enough to ask? And are you humble enough to set aside your schedule and your agenda to reach out and care for one another? Again, we don't have to fear each other. You don't have to worry about what other people's reaction are going, is going to be. But we are called to care for one another. So we have this God who's transcendent. He's altogether great and glorious and powerful and other. And that causes great humility in us. But it also frees us from having to fear anyone else. And we have this God who's incredibly caring, incredibly intimate with us, present here. And that gives us great honor and pride and a sense of nobility. And should drive us to care for one another. But it gets even better. David has shown us the incredible power of our God. He's marveled at the incredible care of our God. And now he points us to the incredible calling of our God. First, the call to rule. Listen again to verses 5 through 8. What's man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. If you haven't noticed yet, Psalm 8 is basically Genesis 1 and 2 smashed down into nine verses, one of which is a repetition, so smashed down into eight verses. We talk about creation, we talk about the heavens, the stars, the moon, we talk about animals, beasts, birds, fish, All of it created in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, we get the crown of creation, mankind. And David celebrates that as well here in Psalm 8. Just look what he says about you and about us. We are a little lower than the heavenly beings. So in God's economy, it's God, heavenly beings, us, animals. We are a little lower than the heavenly being. What an honor. What glory. We are crowned with glory and honor. We alone of all creation are made in the image of God. We alone of all creation have the privilege of communing with our God through his spirit that lives in us, through his word that he's given to us, through prayer. We are the crown of creation. And David says, we have been given dominion over the works of his hands. And this is astonishing. God creates everything And then makes Adam and Eve and sets them in the garden and says, it's yours. Rule over it. Care for it. Cultivate it. Make it flourish and thrive. 
It's as if had Napoleon actually conquered Europe, he called a stable boy to come and administer the country for him. It's that kind of disconnect between the splendor of the task and the humility of the task, the one who's called to carry out the task. David is reminding us that we are royalty. We are called to rule. He says, we rule. We've been given dominion. We've been crowned. We bear the image of the king of kings. Brothers and sisters, you are royalty. Think about yourself that way and treat one another that way. We are called to rule. But we can't talk about Genesis 1 and 2 without remembering, as we said this morning, Genesis 3. We can't sing Psalm 8, this side of the fall, without a note of dissonance. Because all these, things, all these great things are said about us, and we look around and or we look in the mirror and, are you sure? Really? And this becomes especially clear when we get to the phrase, you have put all things under his feet. David says, God has put all things under man's feet. And we don't see that, do we? It doesn't seem like mankind is in control. Things actually seem out of control. Hunger and suffering abound, not just around the world, but here on our own island. Corruption seems to be the order of the day in local governments and international governments and everything in between. War, strife, injustice, abuse drive people from their homes in a refugee crisis, the likes of which the world hasn't seen. Murder, hatred, abuse of power, retaliation, revenge, all flood the news waves and your social media feed. It certainly doesn't seem like God has put all things under our feet. But this is where we have the last aspect of the incredible calling of our God. It's the call to hope. Verse 6 again tells us that God has put all things under our feet, and again, we don't see this, but neither did David. I wonder if he had this dissonance as he was writing Psalm 8, composing it to be sung, because this is David who, when Samuel came looking for the king, got forgotten in the fields. Of course it's not going to be David, he's the runt of the litter. Nobody wants a shepherd for a king. This is David who, as he was rising to power, was hunted by Saul because of his jealousy. This is David who lost an infant son because of his sin. This is David who suffered the rebellion of an adult son who didn't just leave the faith but tried to kill David and steal the kingdom from him. David did not see all things under his feet. The early church was no different. They did not see all things in subjection under their feet even after Christ had come. They were marginalized by the Roman society, rejected by their Jewish friends and relatives, They suffered ridicule, imprisonment, torture, martyrdom. They did not see all things under their feet. It probably felt like they were the ones being trampled underfoot. But that's what makes the words of the author of Hebrews so sweet and gives us so much hope. This is the author of Hebrews writing to his church, chapter 2, starting in verse 6. It's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
So the author has just quoted Psalm 8, and now he's going to explain it a little bit. And putting everything in subjection to him, that means everything. He left nothing outside of his control. So everything is in subjection. And then the author gets really honest. He says, at present, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. He's honest. We don't see it right now. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Yes, things are screwed up here. We don't yet see everything in subjection under our feet. We don't even yet see everything in subjection under Christ's feet. But the author of Hebrews tells us, points us, and says we see him seated on his throne, ruling in perfection, in glory and power and might. We see him who has defeated all of his enemies and will return to destroy them. We see him. Jesus told us to expect this. In this world, you will have trouble. Actually, he uses the word tribulation. In this world, you will have big trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Won't you listen to the call of David and put your hope in this God? So who are you? If I ask you the question outside afterwards, who are you? What has David told us? David has told us we are humble creatures in the presence of an incredibly powerful God. We are honored, remembered, loved children of an incredibly caring God. And we are royalty, called to rule over God's world following the incredible calling of our God. But again, in answering this question, David hasn't talked about us much. And that puts the question in perspective. He just, he points to God, and he points to God, and he points to God, and so after dealing with Psalm 8, when we ask the question, who are you, it doesn't seem so important anymore. It doesn't seem to matter quite as much. Who cares who I am? Let me tell you about God. Join with me in falling on your face and worshiping this God. Echo with me in the words of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are majestic. We thank you for your might and power and transcendence over all things, over all creation, over us, over your enemies. Father, we thank you for that power. We worship you because of it. But Father, we thank you that you're not just powerful, but that you're close, that you're near, that you're mindful of us, and that you care for us. Father, as we leave this morning, give us great humility and great confidence. Help us not to fear one another, but to love and care for one another. Above all, Father, we pray that you would help us to hope in you. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.